All right, well, good morning. I'm Matt Miner. I've got the privilege of sharing with you this morning in our Faith in Action series. And Pastor Mark kicked that series off here last week, if you guys were here. And he took us to Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, we see this list of Old Testament people that were commended for their faith, for their trust in God, trusting in what they cannot see, right, was what we talked about last week. And during the course of the series, over the next few weeks, you're going to get a variety of speakers. We're sharing the series with Oak Point Milford. Actually, Pastor Mark uh, is at Oak Point Milford today, uh, preaching on one of the characters. But we're going to look at a different character from that series every single week. And we're going to start to see that every character has a little bit of a different journey, Uh, Just like we all have kind of a different path in our walk with God, but at the same time, they were all called to believe in the same person, God himself, and to believe in his promises, Uh, just like we're called to to trust his words today. Um, And we even saw last week that there's a reward. There's a reward for people that faithfully walk with him, and we just get glimpses of that reward, I think, in this lifetime, but ultimately we realize that when we get to live with God forever Uh, in eternity. So when you look at Hebrews 11, it's a pretty interesting list of people. Uh, Sometimes it's called the Hall of Fame of Faith or the Heroes of the Faith. And I was thinking this week about my childhood hero. I got a throwback name for some of you. Does the name Matt Noakes ring a bell with anybody? Yeah, one or two, right? Not very many. Matt Noakes was a catcher for the Detroit Tigers. 1987, he hit 32 home runs, which was the uh, record at that time for catchers, uh, rookie catchers. He was like third in the uh, rookie of the year voting that year. Um, And so I I just loved Matt Noakes. I bought uh, a jersey. I had like a framed autograph picture on my wall. I had like all these baseball cards of Matt Noakes. Um, And I just really followed his career after that. He was kind of a one-hit wonder, though. That's why you haven't heard of him. He had a pretty mediocre career. If you know anything about baseball, he had a career batting average of like 254, which isn't you know that great, but he, he made a bunch of years. Um, but he might actually be most famous for landing an airplane on an interstate uh, highway in San Diego because his plane ran out of oil. So you may have heard of him for that. Uh, he's not exactly hero material, not exactly the stuff of Hall of Fame. But even this last week, as I was looking up Matt Noakes to kind of remember some stuff about him, there was an article that said Matt Noakes is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, sort of. And it went through to talk about how he's kind of a footnote in the history of several other Hall of Famers, one of the big ones being that Matt Noakes was known for not being a good defensive catcher. And usually you want to be pretty good at defense, throwing base runners out. Uh, He was the catcher behind the plate when Ricky Henderson stole his major league record setting stolen base. And of course, Ricky Henderson's the greatest leadoff hitter of all time if you follow baseball. And so Matt Noakes is just kind of a footnote in his history. And as we look at uh, the characters in Hebrew 11 and some of their stories, sometimes the list is a little bit like that. Like, why is that person in there? As you read their story, you realize they're kind of screwed up, they're flawed, they're imperfect. Um, But I think that's a big reason why a lot of those characters are in there, to be an encouragement to us in our faith, because they were commended for trusting God. And I think that uh, there's somebody, they're, they're a group of people we don't necessarily need to put up on a pedestal, but we can see really what God did through them when they trusted him. And our character we're going to look at today is one of those. Today we're looking at the story of Gideon. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Gideon. You might know parts of Gideon's stories in the book of Judges, Judges 6 
through 9. And in the book of uh, uh, Judges, as we see Gideon's story, you might have heard his story where he lays out the fleece before God as a test. So you might know that part of the, the story. Or you might know the part of the story where uh, he held up the torches and they smashed the, the pots that had, the, well, smashed the pots that had the torches in them and played the trumpets and the small army of 300 defeated this massive Midianite army in front of him. You might know some of those stories and we'll hit some pieces of those today. Or you might know him from his movie appearance. He was in Veggie Tales. He was in Gideon, Tuba Warrior, right? Have you guys seen that one? So you might know Gideon from, from Veggie Tales. Now, but Gideon is here in Hebrews 11. He's listed in uh, verses 32 to 34. It says, And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Right? That's where Gideon's mentioned. And as we see uh, the story of Gideon, we're going to see that Gideon does have tons of flaws, lots of doubts, uncertainties, a lot of fear, sees himself kind of weakly, uh, views God wrongly. But God takes him on this faith journey and he uses him in pretty incredible ways in that story because he steps out in faith. And that was why I picked Gideon to, to look at this morning. Uh, as a person, I just know I'm flawed, right? I've battled with insecurities, with doubts, with fears, all those different things. Uh, and my faith is small, right? Um, and so God's really taken me on a journey with him through my life. And I hope as we look at the story of Gideon this morning, it can be an encouragement to you that God wants to use us wherever we are at with what's right in front of us. Um, and he just he wants us to trust in him. So Gideon's story is about four chapters long. We can't look at all four chapters um, and do justice to it this morning. We'll hit kind of hard the first two chapters of it, and I'll tell parts of the story. Uh, but the first three chapters are really about Gideon, and then the fourth chapter is about his sons after his death. Um, if you don't know much about the book of Judges, the book of Judges is a period in Israel's history uh, that really tracks before they have any kings, but as they've begun to uh, kind of move into the promised land that God has given them. And the book has just this cycle in Israel's history where Israel is unfaithful to God and they take on uh, worshiping some of the idols and the gods of the nearby people around them. And because they do that, God kind of removes his hand of protection from them and they end up being oppressed by the people around them and uh, enslaved by the people around them in a lot of ways. And then what will happen is after a period of time, the people of Israel will cry out to God and they will ask for his help and he'll have compassion on them and he will raise up a person. They call him a, a judge, a deliverer. He will raise up a person and that person will save them from um, the people that are oppressing them. But then what happens is after they're saved, they just fall back into their old ways and the cycle starts over again. And that's where we find ourselves here uh, in Judges chapter 6. The story starts the same way. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So it's that same cycle all over again. And there's several verses there that we won't read, but um, this group of people was uh, an immense group of people, and they would wait until Israel had planted all of their crops, 
And as soon as it was time to harvest them, they would send in these massive armies, camels, uh, tents. It said there was more. It was like as many as the locusts, like you could, it was an uncountable number of people, and would just destroy their crops and take all their stuff and then leave. And then they'd wait till the next year to come back. And so we find Israel, actually a lot of the people, living in caves and kind of hiding uh, for fear of these people. And um, we get a little glimpse of what Israel had done to put themselves in this situation. It's this, the same thing that we see really throughout this cycle in the book of Judges. Um, when Israel cries out to the Lord here, God answers them through a prophet and kind of tells them, this is what you did wrong. Uh, he, he explains some of the things he's done for them. God says, I saved you out of Egypt. I did all these amazing uh, miracles and wonders. I gave you all this land and prosperity. But he says in Judges 6.10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Right? They began worshiping these other gods uh, alongside of their own. And there's a real theme, of course, in our story, and it's a theme in the book of Judges really throughout all of Scripture, and that's that there can only be one number one. Um, we see it everywhere in the Old Testament, but even if you just think of the Ten Commandments, you might be familiar with those. The very first two of them are, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we're in a series, right? The title of the series is called Faith in Action. But our actions don't matter. Our, our faith doesn't really matter unless the person we are putting our trust in is worthy of that trust. And God is indeed worthy of our trust because of who he is and what he's done. And that was what he was trying to show to Gideon in our story. There can only be one number one, and it's God. And we consistently see Israel fail at that. And sometimes when you read through the Old Testament, you feel like, there's no way I would have done that. There's no way that if God had spoken to me that I would go and just start worshiping these other idols. But I'm sure Israel said that too, right? So what happened to them? Uh, the culture around them happened to them. They were just influenced by all these people that had really strong beliefs, really passionate beliefs about things. Uh, in particular, they believed in these false gods they believed in, in gods of the weather that would help them harvest their crops, and they believed in gods of uh, fertility that would help them and bless them with children, and they believed in gods and goddesses of the underworld that would lead them into the next life. They believed in these things, and so as Israel lived uh, in this culture, they started taking on those beliefs, and they started kind of worshiping those, and they didn't stop worshiping Yahweh, their God, but they started also worshiping some of these other things. And uh, I think there's a real danger there, um, and that danger is real for us today, right? We live in a culture that's definitely pushing pluralism, that, that all beliefs are kind of equally valid and true, right? But our culture is also pushing kind of a privatization idea, that your faith should just be yours, you shouldn't really, you know, push it on anybody else. Um, and of course, there's a lot of tension in some of those beliefs. It isn't really for the sermon today, but obviously there's a lot of logical contradictions in thinking everything is true, but then telling people except, except yours isn't true, but they're all true. There's a lot of contradiction in that. But really, there's, there's a danger that we can elevate beliefs or people uh, or, or objects to idol status um, in, a, in a way that's similar to what they did. And in our culture, maybe for you personally, uh, I, I don't know what those idols for you might be. Maybe it is kind of other religions, like it was in their case. Uh, maybe it's something like politics or a particular cause. Um, 
This week we celebrated 4th of July. It could be patriotism or personal freedom, or it could be something just like consumerism and the want for more things. It could be media consumption. I mean, there's all kinds of things those idols could be for you. And whatever it is, I think part of the message of Gideon's story is that it is serious, dangerous business when we allow God to be replaced or put on the same level with other things. We don't want God to slip from first place in our lives. But this is where the story of Gideon begins. When you read about him, he's got a family that worship Baal. Uh, His father has an altar to this false god Baal and has an Asherah pole uh, in his, basically his backyard. It might be the only one in town and all the townspeople come there and worship these other gods. And we'll see Gideon faced with decisions to trust God in the midst of those things or decide if he's just going to kind of keep on pace with the culture around him. And when we first find Gideon in the story, he's like the rest of Israel. He is hiding. He's actually threshing wheat in a wine press, which is normally more underground and kind of small. And of course, they would make wine in a wine press. And usually when they're threshing wheat, it's up on a hill um, and it's kind of out in plain view and the wind blows away the kind of useless parts as they're threshing the wheat. But that's not where we find Gideon. And we also don't find Gideon standing up to this uh, people that is oppressing them. We just find him kind of scratching for survival. He's hiding, he's afraid. And then God himself appears to Gideon. And they have a brief exchange, and we'll kind of come back to some of these parts of this uh, later in the message. But God just drops this bombshell on Gideon. He says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Uh, As we see in the story, Gideon's not really a mighty warrior at that moment in time, right? He's hiding, uh, he's threshing wheat in secret, but God already sees that Gideon can become a mighty warrior for him through God's strength. Uh, Gideon definitely doesn't see it yet. One of his responses is, how can I save Israel? And he begins to give this list of kind of rationalization and excuses that we'll come back to in a few minutes. But God ignores all that. God has something really big for Gideon to do in faith. He wants him to lead the way in delivering Israel out of oppression from this people group. Uh, This people group that's got all the uh, kind of momentum in their favor and the camels and the size of the army and war strategies, they got all that. Um, And Gideon isn't quite ready to take on that bombshell. So God, we're going to see, patiently takes him on a journey and begins to kind of strengthen Gideon's faith in order to accomplish this. That first command, go and save Israel, just like too big, too big for Gideon. So as we see in the story, God actually gives Gideon kind of three more smaller groups of commands that helps walk Gideon along in this faith journey. Uh, The first command he gives to him is when God has appeared to him, and he's really calling Gideon to follow him. And this first command basically says to Gideon, just worship me right here, right now. Um, And so Gideon had brought this this meal. Um, It says in Judges uh, uh, 6.20, Gideon had brought an offering, but he wasn't quite sure. He didn't really know he was speaking to God. I think he kind of thought he was, but that would be really surprising for God to have appeared to him there outside the wine press. But in Judges 6.20, God says to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread 
and put him on this rock and pour out the broth, and Gideon did that. And at first, Gideon, you know, like I said, wasn't really sure he was talking with God, but then God reaches out and touches the, the offering, and it just explodes in fire and is completely consumed before him. And Gideon knows at that moment that he is standing in front of the one true God, and he, he worships him. He says, Sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And it was such a small command, right? Just, you know, bring this offering, put it here before me. Uh, but it was one that really began to reveal to Gideon that God is actually with him. Uh, it wasn't just saying he was with him. And it kind of leads into the next part in the story. Now, the next command that God gives to, uh, to Gideon is quite a bit tougher. Because, like we said, Gideon's family has got these uh, idols, these altars, the whole town is probably worshiping there. And what God says to Gideon next is, I want you to help set aside these other gods that are taking first place. Uh, set aside these gods in your family and in your town, and I want you to worship me publicly after this private worship. And we see in Judges 6, uh, verse 27, God says, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it and then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. And using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. And so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. He had a lot of fear that I think was pretty reasonable and we're going to come back to some of Gideon's reactions and his insecurities and his fears in a few minutes. But he does ultimately what God asked him to do and he removes that altar and he sacrifices to the Lord and he burns up the Asherah pole. Um, and what's really interesting in the story is that we see this kind of incredible sequence of changed hearts. It doesn't really point it out real drastically in there. Uh, but he has just killed his father's really valuable bull, and then he's destroyed his father's altar. And the next morning, when the townspeople realize what has happened, they all show up at his father's door, and they say, bring Gideon out, we're going to kill him. And the only person to defend Gideon is his father. Kind of interesting. Uh, some kind of change had happened in his father's heart in terms of following God, uh, and then God begins to gather this army behind Gideon. After he uh, has destroyed these idols in his hometown, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, and there be begins to come people from all different tribes of Israel to follow him. He ends up with something like 32,000 soldiers behind him. But the first group of people that it lists that came out to follow Gideon were the townspeople. So somewhere in there, they went from wanting to kill him to wanting to follow him and lead in the deliverance of Israel. Uh, the momentum of, of a lot of changed hearts, it just started with kind of that one small act of faith. It was pretty cool. So at that point in the story, after Gideon's destroyed these altars, he's, he's worshipped God, God puts this huge army behind him. 32,000 soldiers, he's got the spirit of the Lord, and uh, he's looking down in the Valley of Jezreel. They're probably up in some kind of high area. And there's this massive army in front of them. It's that time of year. They have come to take all the crops, destroy everything. It says there was about 135,000 soldiers. So he's outnumbered four to one. Uh, but I got to think he's, he's feeling pretty good at this point. He's got a pretty big army. God's at his side. God's already uh, shown him some pretty cool things. But then God gives him this third command to trust him. And this is by far the toughest one yet. 
He wants Gideon to completely depend on God and God's power alone. And God says to Gideon, basically, 32,000 men is way too many to take on this army and for God to really demonstrate God's power. And so he says, first of all, tell the people who are afraid they can go home. So Gideon does, and 22,000 soldiers went home. So now he's got 10,000 behind him, you know, still good amount of people. He's got a good chance with God there to say, and God says that is still way too many soldiers. And he has, him take, has Gideon take the soldiers down to the water. He gives them some little obscure tests, like how do they drink, and depending on how they drink, he sends a bunch of them home, and God whittles it down to 300 people. That was it. 300 people behind Gideon against this army of 135,000. If you're a math person like me, that's about 450 to 1. So odds were not so good now. Um, And uh, uh, Gideon did this. This is what's really interesting. So if you look at Judges 7, 7 to 8, it says, With the 300 men, God says, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, let all the other men go, right? The other hundred, the other 30-some thousand men, let them go, each to his own place. So Gideon did. Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300. And the really interesting thing was, God had a plan for Gideon that was even with those 300, he didn't even send them with weapons, right? He sent them with torches and trumpets, okay? This is, this is what he said, by the way, Gideon, I'm going to win the victory, And it's at that point in time that God circles back to the very first command. Once he's got it down to 300, he comes back to Gideon. He says, Gideon, it's time for me to save Israel by your hand. His words were, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. Uh, Gideon needs a little bit more reassurance. Again, we're going to come back to some of Gideon's reactions in a minute. But ultimately, Gideon does it. He takes those 300 men, they surround the camp at night, Uh, And while this entire camp is sleeping, all of a sudden they just start blaring these trumpets and they smash these pots and it kind of illuminates the night and they start screaming out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon and the uh, army just awakes in a panic. And they think a massive Israelite army, they probably already scouted out the 32,000. They thought they were on them in the camp and they all just start killing each other and they start running. Uh, In Judges 7.21, Uh, It's really amazing when you read this verse. It says, while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. The 300 didn't even have to fight. They just stood there, and God won the victory. It's pretty incredible. And it was really an incredible act of faith, not just by Gideon, but all 300 of those that stood there that could have very easily died. Uh, And is Gideon scared? Yes, he definitely is. And we're coming back to that in a minute. But in every one of these cases, the verses are so cool. It just says Gideon did it, right? In one way or another, Gideon did what God asked him to do. Took some reassurance, but God walked right alongside him in the journey. God protected him. He delivered him. uh, He rewarded him. And I think God does that process with us too. He often kind of takes us in baby steps, um, we were watching some family videos uh, just over the last week. We pull those out every once in a while, kind of fun to watch when our kids were young. We were watching one where, uh, you know, one, one of our sons was singing, and it was sort of before he really had a good voice. It was pretty amusing. Watching other ones where our kids are playing sports and they're not coordinated yet. Um, you know, you, I think of videos we've watched, we're kind of holding our kids' hands and we're walking them. And I feel like that is how God is with us sometimes, right? 
uh, as we were with our kids when they were young, we weren't annoyed with them. We weren't, you know, bored by them or anything like that. No, we loved seeing where they were in the journey. We loved watching them grow, right? Just a, amazing to watch children grow. And I think a lot of times God is kind of with us, holding our hands in the journey as we're, as we're walking and we're taking these baby steps. But those baby steps can lead to bigger steps of faith as God lovingly guides us. Matthew 25, parable of the the talents, which I think we've looked at before here. Jesus commends the one who's faithful in just some small things, in just some baby steps. Um, And the master in the story says to the faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. I don't know, maybe God is calling you to take some kind of a step of faith like Gideon. Maybe it's one of those private steps of faith where just spending some time with him, just worshiping him, listening to him, praying, getting into the Bible. Uh, Maybe it's more of a public step. Maybe you need to distance yourself from from something that's kind of been getting in the way or that you know isn't right. Or or maybe you need to share your faith with somebody. Uh, Maybe it's identifying some kind of area where you've let God kind of become second in that area, where you've depended on your own strength, and maybe it's just giving that area over to God. Uh, Sometimes I think it's hard to see how God will do this, some of these things in our lives. Obviously, we're not like Gideon. We don't have God appearing to us and speaking to us audibly and telling us exactly what to do. Um, It's a little bit different, but... When our faith is in Jesus, his Holy Spirit is inside of us. We have the Bible. We have the Word of God. uh, We have other people around us to give us wisdom. All of this, I think, helps us on our journey. And I was thinking this week, uh, just an example of my own life, of how I've kind of felt God, you know, walking me along in those baby steps uh, in my journey. I think all the way back to when I was in college, I began to feel kind of a vague call to do something in ministry. Um, wasn't sure if it was like going into full-time work ministry or what it was, but there was just kind of that, that call on my life and um, briefly considered going to seminary right out of college and maybe, you know, becoming a pastor or something, but God had some things to do in my life first, um, and so the answer was no. And then Emily and I prayed about potentially going to Turkey for a year with Campus Crusade for Christ and doing a one-year stint there. And uh, we kind of researched it. I remember meeting with Pastor Paul Jenkinson in his office and talking to him about it. Um, You know, we're starting to learn some Turkish, and we were really just like thinking about and praying about what would it be like if we left our jobs and we went to Turkey. And, And the answer just turned out to be no there. And so we tried to Uh, look at what God had right in front of us. We did some short-term missions to Zambia. We got involved with the high school ministry and working with high school kids of the church, those sorts of things. Um, and, And it really was a blessing to us. And then it wasn't too long before God was opening the door to me to then go to seminary. So I did go to seminary while I was working, kind of did a degree at night. But when that was done, Uh, I felt like the answer was still no to going into ministry. It was still just a question of like, how is God going to be using this thing? Um, And at that point in time, I had been coaching high school football for about 11 years, um, you know, and there became a point in time where I just felt like I I need to take a little break from coaching. Um, I was getting burned out in some ways, and I just felt like I need to make space for God in my life to really see like what, what is he calling me to do with this? And so uh, after 11 years of coaching, I said, all right, I'm done for now. Took a little break from that, didn't really have a plan or whatever it was. Um, And the first Sunday night in August of that summer, 
uh, I call it football eve. Some of us coaches call it football eve. The next day, the high school football practices start. As a coach, your life is kind of over. It's six or seven days a week for a couple of months. But so on football eve, um, I got a phone call from somebody I really respect and love at, uh, at our previous church. Um, and that person was asking me to just make a pretty simple commitment for the fall. Um, not, not really worth going into the details, but it was a re- request that I could only say yes to if I wasn't coaching football. And I'm getting this, this call the night before, and I'm like, well, actually, I can do that because I'm not coaching football starting tomorrow. Uh, and so um, that opportunity actually, for me, I saw it spiral into several different ministry opportunities that I think ultimately led me here with a lot of you. Uh, a lot of us took a step of faith to leave Oak Point Novi, or some of you left other churches, to come here and, and be a part of God's work in Oak Point Canton. And as I looked back on that night uh, where I got that call, that football eve, I just knew like that was God's kind of uh, showing me that he was right there alongside me in the journey. And even today, of course, the journey continues. God's asking us to be faithful with what's in front of us. He's patient with us in the journey. Uh, We stumble, we fall, but he kind of picks us up and helps us keep walking. We learn to lean on him more. Now, as we come back to Gideon's story, when the story starts, Gideon actually has a pretty small, kind of inaccurate view of who God is, and we see that in the story. And he's got a pretty small view of himself, right? Uncertainty, fear throughout the story. I'd encourage you this week to go and read Judges 6 through 9 and see the the whole thing in one setting. But this might be the very reason God's picked him, right? God has picked him because of some of his weaknesses and uh, and flaws, Um, We might have big flaws, we might have small faith, but we have an unlimited God who wants to use us in our weakness for his glory. If you think back to when the story started, we said Israel was hiding in caves, Gideon's kind of hiding in the wine press, and God comes to speak with them, and he says to him, like we read before, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon responds, if the Lord is with us, then why is this happening to us? Where is all these wonders, right, that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. And he goes on to say, I'm weak, I'm a nobody, I'm from like the smallest clan, the weakest clan. I can't do this, right? Gideon's definitely having doubts, he's entertaining some lies, maybe some lies that God isn't good, uh, maybe that God isn't strong enough to handle this Midian army. Maybe their, their fathers were wrong, or just maybe that God doesn't love them, right? And he definitely feels like he's not strong enough or capable enough to take on the Midian army. And so again, as God takes him through these baby steps, God continues to reveal himself to him. And in verses uh, 14 and 16 of chapter 6, God responds, Am I not sending you? I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. And we see over the course of the story that God does start to believe that God is, uh, that Gideon does start to believe that God is good, that God does want to rescue Israel, does want to save them. And the doubts continue throughout. Of course, one of the most well-known sequences is Gideon laying the fleece out before God. And in our story, that happens after Gideon has destroyed the altars in the town, Uh, And God has amassed this giant army behind him, and uh, he hasn't whittled it down to the 300 yet. He's got the 32,000 behind him, and he's getting ready to send him against it. And Gideon's probably looking down at this big army, and Gideon is still really doubting that God is going to use him in this way. And in Judges 6, 36 to 38, Gideon said to God, 
I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground's dry, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand, as you've said. Um, And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece out. He wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water, right? It was a totally unusual request. Uh, Gideon isn't discerning God's will. God already told him what he needs to do, and Gideon still doesn't believe it. And God delivers this miracle for him to help him. It was exactly what Gideon needed, and Gideon still doesn't believe it. He asks him for a second miracle, and he asks him to flip it around. He says, don't be angry with me. Just let me make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And amazingly, that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. It's definitely not a recipe for how we should interact with God. We're not told, hey, just test him in whatever we want to do in that way, and he's going to answer you that way. But it was exactly what Gideon needed, and it got him ready. Uh, After God shrinks that army down to 300, Gideon's afraid again, and I don't blame him. 300 against 135,000. And God says to him, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp at night and just listen, and then you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. And Gideon was afraid, so the next part is he runs right down to that camp with a servant to listen. And in his providence, he hears this soldier talking about this dream he had. And the soldier turns to the other soldier after telling him the dream and says, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And that that was all Gideon needed. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And they go and they win this amazing victory. Our small faith is not a barrier for our unlimited God. In Matthew 17, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. We can't just set our terms. We can't just say, hey, God, I need you to move this mountain. But if God wants that mountain moved, and we're in front of it, and we trust him, he will move that mountain in the same way that Gideon uh, stood before that massive army. God moved. God uses us. Our doubts, our fears, our insecurities, he uses us if we trust him. And a big reason he does that is because he wants the glory. He's the real hero of the story. We kind of glossed over this, but when Gideon um, had his army shrunk down to 300 people, God told him why he was doing it. He said, it's in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. There can only be one number one, and God is deserving of all glory and honor. When we read about Gideon in Hebrews, that kind of hall of fame of faith, he isn't commending Gideon for his strength. He's commending Gideon for uh, his faith in God's strength. And it's intended to be an example that points us towards God, towards Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 2, right after the hall of fame of faith, the author says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. All right? Our acts of faith shouldn't point at us. They should point us to Jesus. And if you're here this morning uh, and you haven't made Jesus the center of your story, do that today, right? All it takes is in the quiet of your heart, put your faith in him. Admit that you're flawed, that you're broken, that you're afraid, that you're in need of him 
to deliver you. He's provided that deliverance by dying for you on the cross. As we near a close today, I wish I could tell you that Gideon's story had a happy ending, right? That he won that victory and everything was great after that. And there was some good things there because they did have some peace for the 40 years uh, after that. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Gideon was a little bit more of a one-hit wonder than a lifetime achievement award. Um, we really only focused on chapter 6 to 7, but if you went home and read chapter 8, you'd notice something unique. After all the amazing stuff that God did through Gideon's faith in 6 and 7, in chapter 8, Gideon starts getting a lot bigger and God starts getting a lot smaller in the story. In fact, you don't hear from God at all. You just see uh, uh, Gideon just being an awful person. He kind of takes control. He acts like a king. Harsh punishments on the Israelites. Uh, took a lot of wives and concubines. Named a son Abimelech, which means son of a king. Um, he even required Israel to give him gold from the plunder. And he built a golden ephod, which he put right next to his house in his hometown where he had just destroyed the altars a few years before. And he probably didn't originally intend that to be a really bad thing, but ultimately Israel started worshiping uh, this golden thing that was right there. And as scripture says, it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And as soon as Gideon dies, it says in Judges 8, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies on every side. I mean, it's definitely a cautionary tale. God doesn't want us to just trust him uh, when times are really tough, when the giants are in front of us, when there's a massive army camped in front of us, right? He wants us to depend, to depend on him even when things are good and not just rely on our, our power, uh, our, our wisdom, our wealth, our privilege, right? Uh, it isn't about losing salvation, but it's about losing effectiveness for God and his kingdom. So wherever you are in your faith journey today, take some time this week. Let God speak with you. Are there big or small steps of faith that God is asking you to take? Are there priorities that need to be rearranged in your life to put God back in the number one spot? Do you have doubts or fears that you need to just turn over to him? Maybe there's great things in the past that you just need to remember and thank him for. Uh, or maybe there's some complacency, some apathy that's settled into your walk. All those things, just, just lay it before him and put him back in the center of your story. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God who saves, who sees us, loves us, is compassionate. I thank you that we can rest in your strength and not our own strength. And we just ask that you increase our faith, Lord. Let our lives be lives that point towards you, that point towards Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.